0: From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan Lasky. There are some times when I'm talking to someone for the show that the conversation takes twists and turns I never saw coming. Those are some of the most fun episodes to record, and today is a great example of a guest taking us on a journey that is surprising and candid, and still has me thinking about it days after we had the conversation. My guest is John W. Miller, a journalist and filmmaker who came on the show to talk to me about a documentary he made and articles on economics he wrote for America magazine. The documentary is called Moundsville, and it tells the story of a small West Virginia town that is proud of its unique history and facing an uncertain future. You can watch the movie on PBS, and it's extremely well done and worth your time. Unlike those feature stories about communities in the Rust Belt that are written by someone parachuting into a town and then leaving just as quickly, John has really gotten to know the people of Moundsville, and has continued to share stories of the town on a website he runs called moundsville.org. I asked John about the movie, which was the first feature film he has made, and I asked him about his articles in America, but we also talked about John's own life story— From his childhood as a son of American parents growing up in Belgium, to his job writing for the Wall Street Journal, to a huge decision he made to leave that successful career behind. He also shares about how Ignatian spirituality has guided him on his journey. I think you'll love the way John smoothly moves from personal stories to high-level social analysis and back again. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, John W. Miller, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Uh, kind of rainy in Pittsburgh this morning, but um, uh, feeling good. Great. Well, I'm
0: excited to talk to you all about a whole bunch of things. You do a lot of really interesting work um, and you have an interesting life story from the little bit I've read about you uh, online. So maybe you could just start by um, introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your background.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Brussels. My parents were um, musicians who were from Maryland who were backpacking through Europe. And uh, my dad got a job as a piano player in 1976. So they just dropped an anchor. My joke is they fled the terror of the ford administration but that's not really true so they they settled in brussels they they had six kids uh, we all grew up speaking french so i grew up with this kind of fascination for america as like the ancestral homeland hmm. um i joined the wall street journal uh in my 20s in brussels cover global trade in 2011 moved to pittsburgh to cover global mining and then left the journal um by choice for reasons i'll explain in a bit um and made this film moundsville pittsburgh's now home although i still go back to belgium where my friends and family live. But uh, yeah, I'm very much a European, Belgian-American. Hmm. Um, so yeah, so talk about your your time writing for the journal.
0: So you were doing, you were all over the world, right? Writing a whole bunch for them and and then had a pretty big life change.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Brussels. Uh, my parents didn't have a TV they their classical musicians. The most exciting, the, most, the sexiest thing in the house was the newspaper. It was the uh, International Herald Tribune, which was like, a uh, joint venture between the New York Times and the Washington Post. So I was basically reading the best of American journalism. I love baseball. I love like the comics, and I started reading about politics. And I I just love like this kind of you know the daily miracle of uh, of human interest and uh, cultural stuff and economic stuff and politics. So I I knew when I was like seven, I wanted to be a, a newspaper journalist. Uh, af- after college at Mount St Mary's in Maryland, I went back to Brussels, joined a small magazine. Uh, and got noticed by somebody working at the journal who hired me. So I covered economics and global trade. So this was when, like right after China had joined the World Trade Organization, I went to China, went to Africa, I went to all these places that were being impacted by global trade, learned all about like trade deals and how the world of of global trade works. And just like an incredible platform to look at at the world. There was the European Union expansion, which I covered. like all these things were happening uh, economically in Brussels. and it was it was a global story, and the journal, is a great global newspaper that still lets you if you have a good idea go and report out that idea and and I and I you know I loved it and and and, and they liked what I was doing and so it was really you know a, a great job and a great you know great people you work with I, I used to say it was like pitching for the Yankees like if you you know if you hung a curveball and it got hit you know 380 feet in, in the in the alley somebody would catch it like it, you know it was working for like really with and, and for really good people And then in Pittsburgh, I was covering mining, so it was like uh, iron ore in in Minnesota, but also coal in West Virginia, uh, diamonds in South Africa. I was also like learning about where things come from, how they're made, Uh, just a sort of really interesting, fascinating uh, beat. Um, Then in 2016, uh, a few things happened. I I, uh, basically turned 40. Uh, I um, went through the 2016 election with everybody else, uh, and I really had this crisis of like, am, am I doing you know, a kind of deep enough thing that's respond to this moment, both in my life, you know, I'm hit my 40s now and a you know, midlife crisis. Am I doing something something that's meaningful enough? And then the, the, with the, what was happening in the country, like this is sort of an authoritarian moment and Trump. And am I doing something that's like consequential enough? And so uh, the journal offered um, buyouts and I thought, well, this is a good time to, to leave and try to do something else. So I, I did that. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'm going to let you ask another question to see which way you want to direct this. <laughs> sure. So no, but that's a big that's a big life
0: decision, right? To go from uh, something that's stable. I guess journalism's never that stable, but for as high a peak as you're you can get, as you're saying, like for this really well respected thing and covering yeah, and, and journalism's definitely an important thing, right? I mean, covering these uh, these big it, stories or
1: no, it was a huge decision, and, and, and to sort of get to the kind of crux of of, of uh, what we should talk about on a. a, a Ignatian podcast I mean there was a kind of cannonball moment of of like you know this is not what I want to do right now anymore and it's, it's really hard because yeah I mean I uh you know was part of a union I basically it was really a, I would be, be hard to fire me I was making for a journalist I mean you know basically six figures a lot of money for a journalist it was about as good as you can get for a journalist but inside of me it's not what I wanted anymore and so that was you know a horrible crisis I got really depressed it was really mm. hard to kind of reckon with that something I'd done for so long that was like part of my identity uh but yeah when your heart wants something else i mean it probably is easier because at the time I, I was single and i don't have any children so there was a kind of like you know i didn't have the heavy re- responsibility of taking care of people so it was easier to take that you know financial risk frankly um and you know this was part of a, a spiritual crisis too where i really felt like god wanted me to do something else and it was really confusing and it was you know a really painful period and and the sort of The moment that kind of healed me of of the bulk of my confusion was visiting a um, monastery in the south of Belgium where this abbot said, you know, dude, you're really miserable, you need to go back to journalism, go back to what you know, and follow your heart doing that and make yourself happy doing that. And don't try to blow up your life and try to find something else because that's not going to work. You have to sort of take the life you have and make that life happier, that life better, and not just blow it up. Interesting.
0: So you followed that advice then, it seems like you're still writing and making stuff and doing that work, but in a different way.
1: So, yes. Yeah. So then I, I, um, I had visited Moundsville on a um, reporting trip in West Virginia, and the reporting trip was in a place called Nitro, where it was, um, they had made nitroglycerin, that's where the name comes from, and they, uh, the story was that um, Monsanto, the big chemical company, had been making Agent Orange, the stuff that the U.S. dropped in Vietnam during that war in Monsanto, had, uh, sorry, in in this town called Nitro. It had poisoned the ground. Lawyers had won this huge settlement, like $150 million, and I was reporting, and people were like, yeah, you know what, though? We missed the stinky air, we missed the chemicals, because that was the smell of jobs. Mm. And the, I, I, when I was reporting, I went to the, like, I like, what's the biggest employer now? It's the casino, it's the um, the Lowe's uh, hardware store. I went there, what do you guys make? 12 bucks an hour, no benefits. Uh, half of what they are making before at the chemical plants. And that inherent tragedy of that region, which had traded you know, its health for prosperity for so long, it really touched me. On the way back, I saw a sign that said um, Native American Burial Mound in Moundsville, and I pulled off the highway, and I saw a sign that said Paranormal Hot Dog Stand. And I met a guy named Steve Hummel, who ha- ha- was basically this Rust Belt guy who was hustling. He had wanted to be a Navy SEAL. That hadn't worked out. He had wanted to open a gym. That hadn't worked out. He'd opened a hot dog stand. He was struggling. He put a few ghost stuff in there, called it paranormal, and that was working out. So I profiled him in in a front page story for the the Wall Street Journal. But when I left the journal, that place came back to me because I thought, here's a place that combines uh, this tragedy I talked about of of, uh, trading prosperity for health in in Appalachia. It has this uh, Native American mound that can take you back to the very deep past before there was an America or United States of America. And it now has a Walmart, a prison, a hospital. It's just so archetypical, like a theater. Like as, as somebody who grew up in Belgium, here's a place where you can just watch. And le- if you just study the history of this town, you would know so much about the moment we're in. And being an economic journalist, I thought, what if I could do something that was big about the economy of this place without talking about Trump or national politics? Like That would help the conversation. And so I met a filmmaker named Dave Bernabo and proposed Moundsville. So that was pretty much you know not long after I left the journal that all came together. And in, in a way, that was what, you know, the, the sort of integration of this new spiritual energy I had or this new kind of call from God, try to integrate that in, into the work of, of journalism and take the knowledge I had before and put that into, into my work. And also in 2017, I found Tim Reedy, the America editor on Twitter, and I dropped him a line saying, I'd love to write for you guys. And so that um, uh, also came through and I started writing writing for America Magazine. And my first big piece was about Moundsville, actually, because I was fascinated by the town. So I did a piece about Moundsville. And I've done a lot a lot more for America. And um, my, my great uncle, uh, Larry Hunt, um, who's passed away, he, he was a, a Jesuit. And so I was familiar with, with uh, the Jesuit mission, even if I had, hadn't, hadn't gone to um, school at a Jesuit school, like I'm sure a lot of your listeners have. Great. Well, there's yeah a lot
0: going on. I want to talk first about the the movie, um, the documentary that you you mentioned uh, called Moundsville, which I I loved and we'll have a link for people to be able to to watch that online. And again, you mentioned is a place where there's a a lot happening. Like when you're going to tell that story, there there are so many things to cover. There is, as you mentioned, one of the, if not the largest, one of the largest, um, Indian burial mounds from like prehistoric one kind of in the center of this town. And you tell the story of the town's relationship uh, with like, you know, again, essentially the the European settlers who moved in and their relationship with this place. And then the history of the, yeah, the, the industry of the town and some of the racial dynamics in the town, there's just so much uh, there um so yeah what what about the town as you're doing this reporting um what was most exciting for you like what what about it kind of as you were going through it um really just kind of got you uh excited
1: i love places where you can see layers of history and you know one of my this is very cliche when people say what's your favorite city in europe i often often say rome because you just have like you know around the corner there's something that's two thousand years old and there's like something from the 19th century and there's something from the middle ages and you have these layers of history. And in America, you don't often get that. It's like, well, this is from the 60s, this is from the 50s. Like, there's a great line in um, L.A. Story, the Steve Martin movie, where he's showing somebody around the neighborhood in L.A., and he's like, some of these houses are over 25 years old. And in America, it's hard to get that. But in Moundsville, it's in the middle of the town. There's something that's over 2,000 years old, built by a a people known as the Adena people, uh, which were mound builders along the Ohio River, and there were thousands tens of thousands of mounds um in the eastern part of the united states and most of them were leveled as uh white settlers went westward in the 19th century um but this one's still there and it's 69 feet high um and it dominates the town and so they have to reckon with it every day uh in a way that it is is i think kind of spiritual i mean it's a window to the deep past and over time their relationship has changed at one point there was a bar on top of the mound uh, they had put a Christmas tree for a long time that you could see all the way across the river and inmates from the penitentiary would decorate the tree. Uh, in the 70s with the Native American rights movement, uh, they decided that was not appropriate and people are still nostalgic for that moment. And so it's like this way of talking about, you know, the relationship to the past and Native people's way of talking about um, these important kind of sensitive issues in a way that is kind of like a little bit funny, but also touching and, and, and deep. And so I love that. Just by asking somebody, what do you think about the mound? You could learn a lot about What they think about the past and about native america and about these more sensitive questions so
0: you're again background mostly as a writer how did you decide that you know you weren't going to write a book about moundsville necessarily but wanted to make a a film
1: yeah i thought about moving there and writing a book um i almost did i almost just went and camped out a kind of um a la uh, midnight in the garden of good and evil i thought if i just go there and and spend a year there something will happen and I'll, i'll do that um, I had never made a film before, and I thought that would be a fun thing to try. I mean, again, in this season, that season of my life. I mean, I um, wanted to try stuff. I wanted to do other stuff. I thought if I gave up the security of the Wall Street Journal, it's not to do a similar job. I want to really kind of push, you know, what I've been doing. And so, uh, and then visually, I thought the mound and, and some of the stuff we found down there. Um, so like Moundsville had the world's biggest toy factory and they made Rock'em Sock'em Robots, this famous toy and, and this big wheel. And so that stuff was like visually very interesting. Um, and I did a lot of research that's like not in the film, but uh, you know I, I learned about um, a lot of economic development stuff in the 19th century, the importance of the Ohio River, which in uh, the 50s was as important a supply chain as like Manchester was in 1890 or Shanghai or Guangzhou provinces are now in China. Basically, like the, the world stuff was made along the Ohio Valley it, River Valley. It wasn't just coal and steel. It was uh, shoes and shirts and cigars and toys. I mean, they made everything in the Ohio Valley. So, I mean, th- in that sense, like part of the movie. Even if you just see people speaking, I mean, the editing reflected my my own reading, writing, and, and research. Um, uh, you know, I feel like Moundsville was a, a work that. I had been you know, subconsciously working on for years and years and years, because I was just fascinated by the cycles of, of, of capitalism in, in this particular place, and, and, and the Rust Belt, and, and like you know how people were dealing with this very difficult change to their towns and their regions. Yeah, you found some amazing people
0: to speak to. I, it's always hard, because you never know how people are going to be on camera or answering questions, but you just found, like I don't know, so many of the people you featured multiple times through the film, kind of all talking about... You kind of divide it up thematically and are talking about The Mound or talking about um, the Walmart, um, talking about all kinds of, you know, the the history and just young people, you know, people who've had all kinds of different jobs there and just so... um, thoughtful and perceptive about their own experience of the town, like yeah. really rooted in the the place. Um, who were, can you remember any of your favorite people who you found and thought, oh, this is going to be a great a great interview? Oh, yeah. I
1: mean, the, that happened when we were shooting and Dave and I would look at each other and say like, wow, did he really say that? Like unscripted, like there's an old man named uh, uh, Les uh, Barker, who is around 80, retired boiler operator. At one point he goes, you know, I tell my grandkids, what do you want out of this world? You wanna set the world on fire? Or you want enough for a weenie roast now and then? And I was like, did he really say that? I didn't tell him to say that. I mean, that's, you couldn't write that better. And I mean, part of it's editing. Like we talked to 40 people, probably 20 are in the film. Uh, We edited out, obviously a lot of the stuff that was not so interesting. We asked everybody about Trump and about politics and their, their answers were like basically not that original or interesting. So I thought, you know, it's cliche. We're not gonna, we ended up not talking about politics at all because it wasn't interesting. But yeah, so people I loved, I mean, Gene Saunders, who's the town's only ever African-American mayor. I mean, this guy, epic American life. I mean, I wish we I could have put more of him in the film. He had been a coal miner. He lost part of a leg in a coal mine. He had become the mayor. And just like, you know, despite having been the victim of, of segregation in the 50s, like, uh, you know, a, a town booster and loves Moundsville. His kids have left. I mean, he's one of the only black people left in Moundsville. But he loves the town. He loves America. He loves showing people the town at one point he brags about the quality of the town's donuts in the film which is a moment i like um andrea keller who's the the um, curator of the mound is a very passionate you know smart lady who's just really fun to talk to because she's so passionate about uh native history and you don't know much of i mean in the eastern part of the u.s they don't talk much about uh that part of of native american past uh, that goes far that 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 back that, uh, for, um, that far back. And then um, Fred Wilkerson, who's the, this glass maker who's in the film, uh, for Fred Senior was working at Fostoria, which is one of the town's big employers. He was laid off in the 80s uh, as, the, as the factory closed. And he just went back to making glass, but in a different way. He started a little shop. He makes glass in like this furnace. They make glass. They sell online. He and his son, Fred Junior. And it's a two-man glass shop. And I love that because making glass was that guy's vocation. Uh, the, the corporate structure collapsed. He was like, "You know, screw it, I'm gonna keep on making glass." And I just love that kind of like perseverance and, and you know, taking a punch like that and, and and keeping on. And one of the things I really wanted to show is that you know most people in Appalachia are not lying in the street dying of opioid abuse. They're not, I mean, life is poorer, like you know, their economy in ways has collapsed, but there is like it's a different kind of life and and some people are really happy doing really good, rewarding work, and they shouldn't be pity. they should be respected as as fellow citizens. And I feel like there's this, uh, you know, otherization of Appalachia and the Rust Belt that Americans need to, you know, have some some nuance with that, that, that there's lots of different things happening at the same time. And then some, some of those things are good.
0: Yeah. And I, I think you, you pull out a lot of those things while also kind of honestly looking at, you know, tr- like real big challenges again, for in terms of employment, you talk a lot about uh, people are reflecting on young people moving away, you know, the people's kids or grandkids and are they, if they get an education, are they are they leaving? Should they, should they be leaving? Should they be coming back? Um, what was like, yeah. So what is your, like, uh, it's kinda, I guess hard to predict the future, but like, wh- where where is Moundsville going? Like if you were to go back in, in some time, like, will there be, an, yeah. will anyone be left? Like what's yeah. That's
1: what do you and, think? And to be clear, when we talk about Moundsville, I mean, really they, this could be one of, you know, 5,000 factory towns all across America. Uh, which has lost a lot of population. People who are smart and ambitious tend to move to the cities. They move to New York, they move to LA, Pittsburgh. And that's why cities are, are are booming now in America. Uh, so the future for these places, uh, there's going to be some depopulation that seems inevitable. I mean, you can't artificially sustain population forever. Um, I think it's a mix of uh, uh, tourism a little bit. Uh, places like that are really beautiful. In the 19, first half of the 20th century, like where did people in DC go? for their uh, you know, weekend hiking and skiing, it was in West Virginia. At one point they talked about uh, turning West Virginia into the Switzerland of America. That was one of their marketing slogans in the 20s. So some tourism, uh, some smaller manufacturing. In the movie we have a, a, a company that makes kitchen cabinets with like 15 people and they use a lot of robots, a lot of automated technology. So you could have like small manufacturing based on, on, on automation, uh, tourism, you know, tech stuff, West Virginia now is paying people to move there. I think you can get $10,000 if you want to move to West Virginia and settle. Uh, and so with remote work and, and the pandemic has shown this, like people can work uh, from home. And so um, there is some of that happening. People are moving to towns like this because you can buy a house, you can buy a three bedroom house for $100,000. And so you can have a good life. So I mean, and, and then and just accepting that, yeah, there's going to be lower populations and, and things are not going to be the way they used to be, and and one of my you know me- big messages is like we can heal by looking at reality and what actually happened, and by you know accepting and helping with the grief. Like places like this, they've they're grieving, and and their grief is legitimate. Like even if the '50s weren't perfect, and there was you know racism and sexism, like there was still a community that had a lot of you know, human value and 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 love. Uh, And that has been destroyed by, you know, economic cycles. And so that grief needs to be held up and and shared, but also to move on, like nationalist nostalgia isn't going to do it, isn't going to save us either. So look at the reality, look at the future, which is lower population, tourism, tech, um, you know, small manufacturing, and we can be in a better place.
0: One of the the big economic questions that you, I think, give good space to in the movie, including differing opinions, right? And not... I think as a filmmaker did a great job of staying out of it yourself right that you were clearly you were making decisions to feature voices but wanted to make sure that all kinds of different perspectives are represented but it was about about Walmart right and this this big box store that had moved in and became one of the biggest employers around and you had people who were saying look when that came that like really ran out of you know it made all these mom and pop stores on the, the main street downtown Moundsville close." and then you have others including the the former mayor who had said like look, like those places were closing already. Like this is a place where people can go. It's a place where people can work. It like one of the the people who speaks says this is where teenagers go to hang out. Like, um. So that yeah. What what was your um? What did you learn about like the role of a, a huge big box store like Walmart in a community like that?
1: Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, structurally, it's it's a big you know thing that like has a lot of um space that people can go hang out in, uh, you know, there's a bargain there and and you give something up and you gain something. I mean, for Americans in general, it's been what economists call a higher standard of life. I mean, more stuff, basically, like cheaper stuff. So if you're making the same income, you can buy more. Um, and some people like that. And uh, I, I kind of wanted to show that Americans... You know, I think my own opinions about Walmart are are more negative than than in the movie. I mean, I I basically don't think it's been a great thing for America. But a lot of Americans love Walmart. And so I wanted to show that. And I wanted to show that it has been welcome in some communities. And there was some tension over it. The council vote was close to welcome to Walmart in the late 90s. um, And it's been one of the town's biggest employers. So a lot of people work there. Uh, They don't pay very well. And so that's been, um, you know, it's kind of, Again, there's income. I mean, like you know, Moundsville is not. uh, It's not the kind of poverty you see like in in parts of rural India or West Africa. Like you know, a Walmart wage uh, still allows you to have an okay standard of life. Um, But yeah, it's it's complicated. And um, you know, Walmart really could stand in for Amazon too. I mean, basically, just like this consumer economy where you want whatever allows the most consumption. And so, Walmart, Amazon are both examples of that. Uh, Moundsville. You know, was competing with other towns to get the Walmart. So, if it didn't have the Walmart, people would drive, you know, to the next town over to Wheeling or wherever it might be, and 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 buy stuff there. And so, in the kind of somewhat zero sum scheme of American economics, uh, getting the Walmart was was a good thing for Moundsville, um, and you know, like in in the film, I mean, yeah, there are people who use it as their kind of social community, and so for them, it's it's attached to. Um, uh, you know, seeing their neighbors and and, and talking to people. Um, the Chris Arnade, the the photographer who did this book Dignity, he talks a lot about how you know people in the the coastal elites don't respect how important McDonald's are to community in small towns. And I think the same could be said for the the Moundsville Walmart. It's 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 a center of community. Like just taking out the corporate you know story, it's a place where people go to be together, and that always has value.
0: There's another place I wanted to ask you about that's featured in the movie. That w- earlier, when you were talking about uh, the glassmaker who had gone from, like, you know, maybe in the family history of working for these big producers and now doing it a slightly different way, which reminded me of your own story, too, right? Your own personal story. Um, but the penitentiary that is there uh, in the area, which had been, again, this pretty, like, vicious place in, like, the American criminal justice system. Uh, was it Charles Manson had spent time there or Charles Manson's mother? Uh, you can tell me a little bit more about it, but a place now that is a essentially like a paranormal, uh, like ghost tour tourism place that seems to be pretty popular. So yeah, tell me about, uh, the penitentiary and why you wanted to, to feature that, uh, in
1: the movie. So the pen was one of these 19th century Gothic structures that looks like something in a movie. And it, it's in a lot of movies. It's in, um, uh, night of the hunter fool's parade, mine hunter, um, uh, uh, Out of the Furnace, the recent movie. So it looks like uh, you know Count Dracula's castle. Um, I was fascinated by this, so it, it, closed, so it closed in 1995. Um, Charles Manson's mom was there. He tried to get uh, transferred there, the warden said, no, thank you. Other famous people included uh, Eugene Debs, the socialist candidate for president in the early part of the 20th century. He was there for a while. They had the uh, one of the last hangings in America there. Uh, There was an electric chair. I mean, it was a horrible, cruel place. Um, But it was also in the middle of town, across the street from the mound. And although it was very cruel, there was kind of a shared humanity that I think has been lost in our incarceration system. Like, people in the high school would go play um, basketball games against the prisoners. Hmm. The, The different prison teams would come visit and they would play baseball. Like, in the 50s, before network TV could show you baseball at home, you would go watch baseball at the prison, and this is something I've written about on the blog moundsville.org. So all the stories I have not been able to put in the movie, I've, I've been writing about on moundsville.org. And so there was a kind of human, a shared humanity. Like prisoners would go and help clean up the town. There would be like, you know, you know, social interaction. They could lean out the window and talk to people. Um, like that was all kind of part of their shared humanity of being in the same place. And I'm kind of touched by that. I, I, however cruel the rest of the stuff was, and so now it's a tourist attraction. People go. And they look at the electric chair like old Sparky, which I find horrifying. <laughs> but it's it's uh it's sort of this you know, people are entertained, I guess, by the you know the the pain and cruelty of it. Like the cells are very small, and there's a ghost tourism business. And I, I thought this was in, incredible because at the same time, when in 2016, like Trump was winning an election by appealing to ghosts, like this town was literally selling ghosts, and you could pay money and go and try to find ghosts using this like. Meter. I don't know how it works, but <laughs> people could do paranormal. They call it paranormal investigation. That's a huge like niche tourism sector. People will travel all over the country finding these old prisons and like these places where there's ghosts. And in the because it has the Native American mound, and then the prison across the street. You know, has a very strong kind of ghost sales pitch, <laughs> and so people go there and 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 they're marketing it as a place to go and and look at ghosts. And so I think I mean I thought it was really interesting and uh there is um I mean it's it, it, you know you might think it, it it's sort of wrongly spiritual, but it's spiritual, I mean, it's a metaphysical kind of claim uh that I thought was really interesting, and in that part of the country, it makes sense like they've lost so much, like there are ghosts, I mean populations decline, factories are gone, um this kind of human activity that used to be there is is gone, and so you know what's left is kind of memories it's it's inherently yeah, spiritual and metaphysical and uh, I thought that was just very interesting, and, and Steve Hummel is one of the main characters. So he has a museum there called Archives of the Afterlife, where you can go and look at spooky pictures and kind of meditate on what's been. and And I, I love Steve. Steve is a really, you know, sweet, earnest guy who is you know, deserves all the best. And, he, and he's like painting, he's doing all this artwork and, and writing, and, and his museum. And so I also wanted to, to sort of hold hold Steve up as somebody who is who can take a punch and, and is, is not giving up um, his kind of entrepreneurial dreams.
0: Yeah, I just again, I just really recommend folks uh, check out Moundsville and we'll link to it. So many of those stories, you know, of like a journalist goes to somewhere in middle America and sits down at a diner with someone and like finds out why they're voting for Trump after they voted for like all those things that are just like just so cringy. And, um, I just felt like the movie is just so, did such a good job at, again, giving space to people and giving plenty of time and room and featuring all kinds of different perspectives and just like, again, really insightful reflections on the place. Um, so yeah, I really just loved it. And I think is like the opposite of those like kind of fly in stories that are kind of popular uh, these days. So, um, again, yeah, so we'll link to that. And I want to now turn to, um, Something related. Your, your work in America recently this past year, especially kind of writing a lot on uh, economic questions from the, through the lens of Catholic social teaching. Again, I can see those as kind of companion pieces. Um, yeah. So just if you're, you're, I guess, last kind of summing up the year piece for America was a headline: Ten things Pope Francis and Catholic social teaching taught me about the economy. So what led you to want to kind of use Catholic social teaching as this lens, looking at a lot of the uh, kind of big economic challenges today?
1: I've been fascinated by it. I took a class in college at Mount St. Mary's with um, Bill Collins, who's uh, in the theology department there. And I just I've always thought it was like this um, underappreciated part of of Catholicism that there was this rich body of, of writing that you know up, upheld things that basically everybody agrees on. Like you might have differing opinions about you know what being a Catholic means, but like everybody agrees that everybody deserves a living wage. Everybody agrees that. There should be a community where you know your neighbors, and you can live with you know some safety and some love around you, and everybody agrees that you know we shouldn't you know muck up the environment. Like these are all things that you know reasonable people <laughs> agree on, and and here's this like very deep detailed body that kind of uh, structures all that. And so, I when I was thinking about what I can do in journalism that would be like you know uh, sort of loving basically and and and, and spiritual, I thought. What about if I married my Wall Street Journal reporting kind of uh, history and experience with doing journalism that you know would go find uh, sort of incarnations of Catholic social teaching? And so this was the idea that I pitched uh, to America uh, 14 months ago, and they, and they said yes. And so in 2021, I picked um, uh, 11 topics that we wrote about in depth. So they were uh, reforming capitalism uh, the gender pay gap, reparations for slavery, uh, nursing homes, um, income inequality, uh, global trade. I'm going to run out of steam here. I forget <laughs> the other ones, but, but, uh, yeah, so just different parts of the economy. We went. I went and found people who are like kind of living that out. So like women who weren't paid enough or, um, African Americans who are getting, you know, private reparations for, from people whose ancestors had enslaved them. Um, and just to show people, like, what does it mean? Like when you talk about, these issues in a theoretical way, what does it mean uh, when it's actually happening in front of you and can we recognize it? And what are uh, you know smart ways to think about the politics and policies of all all, all these questions? Um, and so then the, the recap was in, in, in December around a very good book that uh, Tony Annette, who um, uh, I, I recommend reading his book, Hefenomics just came out, and so um, talked to Tony about what he's learned. And his big argument is that um, Catholic social teaching is a really not only um, kind of wise, but also very useful, pragmatic part or, or, or position to be in right now in our politics, where it combines kind of the emphasis on human flourishing and human freedom of uh, the right and, and libertarianism, and in the, the sense of fairness of, of socialism and the left, and it's a, a middle ground, a smart middle ground between what he calls the twin shipwrecks of uh, uh, communism and libertarianism, and I basically agree with that, and so. Uh, I hope that my work has helped kind of show, you know, what Catholic social teaching looks like in practice. Yeah, I, I just wonder,
0: kind of, you mentioned this, so, like, in the discourse today, or, like, the debates about economic things, political things, like, what what about Catholic social teaching? So, are there, were there things from it, things that you, as you're seeing something lived out, thinking about particular, whether it's concepts, or, like, oh, like, this, like, the really robust sense of the common good, the sense that it's not just about me and my own, but we have to think of, the the common good as something that... um Maybe isn't quite at home in individualistic uh, Western culture, but could have something to offer. Are there there are things that you think are like either a document or some of these themes that emerge? You think, oh, like the US, especially, is like could really use some more solidarity. Could I think that was something in David Brooks' column today could really use like a bigger emphasis on the common good. What, what about Catholic social teaching you think is particularly applicable today?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, the thing that came up in every story, and, and, and this really, in, in a way, Made the whole project worthwhile because I just saw like how cl- how clearly this is important is that we really have a problem in this country with with, with wages and uh, and a- again every single situation like why is it a big deal um, you know stru- the structural impact of, of the sin of slavery. You know, 150 years ago, what what's the kind of structural repercussion? Uh, it's uh, wages aren't high enough in, in African American communities. What what's the problem with you know the big box stores and that kind of economy? Wages aren't high enough. What's the deal with how we treat women? You know, there's a gender pay gap. Like in every situation, and it's hard to regulate that. And nobody has like the sort of uh, perfect idea. Like, I mean, a higher minimum wage is an obvious idea. Uh, collective bargaining is, is an idea. Uh, universal basic income is an idea. But you know, if you operate in a system that is based on the freedom of, of of capital and the freedom of starting a business, inherently, then you have the freedom to to pay people in a way that you know, maximizes your profits. And so, and in America, I mean, the, the the pendulum has swung towards the employer in the last thirty forty years in a way that that is um, you know, has has depressed wages. And, and and I think Catholic social teaching is very useful in explaining why. That's a problem that when people you know can't uh, offer themselves a life of, of dignity so affordable health care and, and a place to live that doesn't have a leaky roof um, you know the the kind of the, the trauma and and the the suffering implicit in that uh, spreads uh, is contagious and, and goes in and the, the rest of society and I think that's what you know David Brooks is talking about And when, when Americans have noticed and why is there this you know the the, the the political problems and 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 the, the you know the, the authoritarian kind of pull uh i think you can you can draw a uh, 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 draw links back to uh wages aren't high enough um for you know 100 million people in this country one thing i haven't asked you about
0: directly but has been in the background of a lot of your answers is your own personal faith journey uh, in the midst of all this So i was just wondering if you could share with us uh any of your own faith story
1: Yeah, so I I grew up in a a household that was uh, Christian and and spiritual. My dad was a Christian scientist till I was ten. He stopped doing that when I I was ten, and and I started going to Catholic mass with my mom, who's Catholic. I'm baptized Catholic. My great uncle was a Jesuit. I went to this um, atheist uh, high high school where you read like French existentialists as part of the the canon, uh, Camus and Sartre, and even the Marquis de Sade. Um, I was kind of a contrarian, so I was kind of like, well, I'm gonna. Believe in God because you don't. And I went to a Catholic college, and I thought, well, I'm going to, you know, show you how you can be an atheist because you're not. And so then, in my 20s, I mean, it was. Uh, I've always been fascinated by the intellectual part of it, and going to Mount Saint Mary's kind of reinforced that but there was this rich tradition of Aquinas and going back to the Greeks and Aristotle and Saint Saint Augustine, and the writing kind of really touched me. Um, but it remained kind of intellectual you know, until i had this midlife crisis this cannibal moment where i'd left the wall street journal i just gotten divorced i was kind of without the familiar structures that i had in my life and in that moment i felt a real personal kind of you know numinous connection to god where there was this you know it was very almost traumatic six weeks of kind of visions and my heart was pounding and you know very clear like kind of connection to the universe and, and to the mysterious depths uh, of the universe and um, kind of invited me to really think about a more personal relationship with God uh, in a way that I, I couldn't not reckon with. I mean, it was like this pit in my stomach. I had to like really confront it and and, and think seriously. So I, I went to this monastery where I was told to basically get a, get a job and a girlfriend and get back to my real life. Um, and so then the last five years, it's really been this process of building that more personal connection. And the Ignatian tradition has been so rich, I found, I mean, not just in my work with America, but I've done the spiritual exercises. So the 19th Annotation, where you do readings every day for, for nine months, um, that invite this very contemplative, uh, kind of tradition of using your imagination to connect with God, putting yourself in gospel stories, um. And thinking about, yeah, how what does love look like in incarnate in the world? How can you live out that love? And I haven't resolved this. I mean, this is something that I think for the rest of my life, I will wrestle with, and it's the nature of the of the faith struggle that it's it's a struggle that goes up and down. You have moments of clarity and moments of of extreme doubt. And so that's where I am. It's this this wrestling with it that I think is part of the Ignatian tradition and, and you know God in all things. And um what I love about it is that it's so open open-minded, whereas, um, where you the you can you accept that and this sounds very Jesuit of me, but ma- many things are true at the same time, and the question is like, where do you find God? What, what's pulling you in a way that you find mo- most loving? Um, and so I, I describe myself as a um, an Ignatian Catholic, um, but the the journey is not over for sure.
0: One of the big challenges we see like in faith community, in uh, in journalism world, in our just dis- society. Uh, you mentioned, like, if we all can agree kind of on some basic premises, then we can love each other, even if we disagree. Um, but that seems to be such a big crisis right now, right? Is that, like, we don't – it's hard to agree on things. I'm sure as a journalist, you kind of see some of that, like, the what is it, post-truth or, like, be different truths or different sets of facts, um, like – was the was it yeah anyway so how how are you dealing with that how are you responding to that as a journalist who values the truth and pursuit of truth where it does seem like some of these even most basic things we can't even agree on the premises
1: so uh i have a secular answer to that question which is that i think that the reason that people or one big reason people have grown to mistrust the media is that they no longer see journalism being practiced uh in their backyard so uh, there's a set of practices. And when people ask me, do you think the media or this media is left or right? I'm like, my answer is always, are they doing the work? So, what is the work? The work is you go talk to people, you go see stuff, you write about it. When you make a correction, when you make a mistake, you, you write a correction, you, you like engage yourself in a community and then tell their stories. And so, in the old days, like there was a local newspaper that was you know, thriving in every town. You would see your neighbor down the road. He'd be knocking on doors. He'd be making phone calls. He'd be like announcing the high school football game. He'd be announce- asking the mayor questions. He'd be telling you if somebody got arrested, who you should know about. And if he made a mistake, he would own up to it. Like there was a kind of integrity that you could see the journalism. And so the, the decline of local newspapers, and since 2004, America has lost 1,800 local newspapers. And that decline of that means that when you read something in the New York times, you no longer know what journalism is in a kind of es- essential way. And so then you don't trust it because you haven't seen that happening in your own backyard. And so what, what I want to do with Moundsville too, with moundsville.org is to kind of offer a template. Like here's a way that you can still have this shared story. And I live in Pittsburgh, which is 75 minutes away from Moundsville. So I'm not there every day, but I do write and I, you know, in, in 2021, my, the blog got over a hundred thousand views for a town of 8,000 people and people are reading it. And so, I wanted to show how important it is to tell that common local story. And uh, it is, I mean, the, there is this crisis now and, and uh, there's a lot happening in local journalism. Um, a lot of uh, startups and, and nonprofits now that I think offer some hope. But the, the problem is building an audience that now in the old days you had like two papers you could get and now you have a billion websites. And so it's hard to command the, the, the shared kind of community of readers that, that you used to. Does that answer the question?
0: Well, you said you had a secular answer. Did you also have a, a, um, a religious answer? <laughs> Not to, I don't like to—I don't like to divide those things. But you were almost setting me up for a second answer.
1: Um, I don't really have a, a religious answer, except that, like, my faith tells me that everything should be benchmarked against reality. That you know what I believe in my heart is only true if I, I can really look honestly at myself and at others and, and see it. You know, I'm only only really really being loving if I can see the love bearing fruit, um, that kind of thing. But I I don't think this is a a, a religious issue really. And I I think about in the, in that kind of tussle between the church and, and 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 journalism. I think about the what I call the the spotlight test. Like at this moment uh, of crisis, 20 years ago, you know, where was God? Was God with the church or was God with the journalists? And I think in the case of the abuse crisis, like God was with the journalist. That like. There is like real love and value in uh, the practice of of, of journalism. And so that is is a secular thing, I think.
0: A big Ignatian theme, you know, is that God is always at work and is just kind of noticing how God is at work in in different times. And um, not necessarily like saying, oh, here's someone who's not encountering God. Let's have them encounter God. But no, like in your life and what you're doing, like where do we see that? The divine presence or God at work. And I just, I do think in the work I've gotten to experience of yours, uh, I, I just see that. I see that coming through with the your care and attention and uh, really grappling with some some big questions. So um, I think you're on a great path and I uh, appreciate your, your sharing some of your story and uh, your great work with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Mike. I really love talking about this stuff. And, um, you know, America Magazine premiered Moundsville in New York City um, across the street from the Wall Street Journal. And so <laughs> I was able to see News Corporation have friends of mine come. And um, I love it when people see the kind of spiritual part of that film, because for me, it was an act of, of, of listening. And I, I feel like uh, in the, the big question about journalism and, and the church and, and, and finding the, the path. I mean, li- listening really is, um, you know, what what can heal us uh, in the end. So thank you. Thank you for listening to me. <laughs> no, anytime. Thanks so much.
0: AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.